to Judas. And he is a very misunderstood person. So to fully appreciate what's going on here in this passage, we need to pause today and we need to consider who this man was, not who we may have heard him to be, but who he actually was as far as the scriptures have recorded him. I want to invite you just to look quickly. We'll, we'll just reread this passage, the, the significant portions, and then we'll pray and we'll get to work looking at Judas this morning. Uh, Acts chapter 1, I want you to look with me in verse 15. In those days, what days? The days in which they are waiting upon the Spirit. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, and the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. The Scriptures had to be fulfilled. Which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in this ministry. There's a parenthetical comment then that Luke inserts telling you what happened to Judas. Remember, this is a book that's written to Theophilus. He's also obviously received the first letter of the Gospel of Luke. He understands the role that Judas has played, but it's also understood that this is going to be a widely distributed letter. So in case you've not read the Gospel of Luke, Luke inserts a parenthetical comment here. In case you don't know, Judas, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akadama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the Psalms. This is the scripture that spoke beforehand to this issue. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. This is what the word of God says regarding Judas. Let's pause for a moment, bow, and ask God to give us insight this morning. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you so much for sending your son. We recognize today that we have been granted by you morality, the capacity to make ethical decisions, to do what is right, to do what is wrong, to exercise our will in a manner that is either glorifying to you or dishonoring to you. And as we encounter Judas, Lord, as we meet this dark, shadowy figure, we recognize that you welcomed this man into your inner circle. You numbered him among the twelve. You called him friend. Indeed, you called him your familiar friend, one of your closest friends. And he betrayed you. And even though you loved him, you still sovereignly ruled over his decisions. And you used his free decision-making ability to bring about the greatest and the only possible salvation that we could ever have had, the forgiveness of sins through what you did on the cross. Lord, as we consider Judas, as we reflect on our own selves, we pray, O Lord, that you would help us to be all that we are for you. Would you help us to find ourselves in you, to live for you, and to find our contentment in what you say? We pray you do that with us this morning, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Interesting poem. 
It's always struck me, and it's always uh, one that I've returned to time and again, a poem that illustrates the futility of the world, a poem about a man named Richard Corey. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement, we looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown, clean-favored and imperially slim. He was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked But still, he fluttered pulses when he said, good morning, and he glittered when he walked. And he was rich, oh yes, richer than a king, and admirably schooled in every grace. In fine, we thought he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. And so on we worked, and we waited for the light, and we went without the meat, and we cursed the bread And Richard Corey went home one calm summer night and put a bullet through his head. It's one of those poems that makes you stand back and say, wait a second, what's really being said here? Here's the man who has the world. Here's the man who is admired. Here is the man who has it all, whom everyone wants to be like. He has ascended to the heights. He has acquired the status. He is well-loved and well-liked by everyone. He's not merely wealthy, but he is charming. He isn't merely well-dressed, but he's human. He is the balance of all things. He is what everyone wants to be like. And as everyone is chasing to be like this man, he goes home one night and he ends it all. It could be a poem titled Richard Corey, or it could be a poem just as easily titled Judas. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that Judas Though we all know his tragic ending, and from the very beginning of every gospel, when we are first introduced to these apostles, Judas is always mentioned last with the epithet attached, the one who betrayed Christ. And we read these gospel accounts with an insight, with an understanding that that's the dark, shadowy figure. But to really understand what was happening in the life of Judas amongst his contemporaries, the other 12 apostles, we would have to stop for a moment and imagine that we didn't know he was the traitor. We would have to stop for a moment and imagine that we didn't already have that inside knowledge that this was the one that was going to betray Christ. Imagine yourself as Peter, James, or John and ask yourself this question. How would these guys have viewed him? And as we get into the details of Judas, we're going to find he was trusted. We're going to find that he was admired and we're going to find that he, was one, he held one of the most important positions of respect within the 12. And yet, at the end of it all, we can never completely remove from our mind the settled notion that this is the one, though he was clearly loved and admired by all the 12, this was the one who, when he betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver, was so ashamed of the reality of who he, had, he was and is, that he committed suicide. As we jump into this text this morning, First Baptist Church, don't, don't look at the world and don't look at yourself the way that Judas did. See yourself as Christ sees you and be who Christ calls you to be. We begin this morning by considering these passages on Judas. We're going to cover a lot of ground in the Word. 
don't flip frantically. You will not be able to keep up. I've got cheat sheet here. That's, you don't have that, so don't try, okay? Just listen. Just listen. For the first time, the preacher is giving you permission not to flip frantically, okay? Just listen and follow me all the way through. First off, Judas was called because of his love for the Word of God and his love of Christ. He loved Jesus like all of the other apostles. As we encounter this man for the first time in the Gospels, it says it's Peter, James, John. It goes through the whole list, and it always comes to Judas last. He's always numbered last, and that's intended by the, the writer to convey something to you. And he's always identified with the epithet, the one who betrayed Christ. And so you know this going in. But there's an account in which we begin for a second to glimpse just a little bit of who this character really is. At the end of the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, when Jesus says, you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh, for my blood and my flesh are true food and drink. And all the 5,000 get offended and walk away. Jesus turns to his 12 and he says, do you guys also want to leave me now? Is it over for you? Have I offended you as well? And of course, Peter stands forward and he has this really, really powerful statement. He says, uh, he says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? For we know you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answers to them. Now, follow it carefully. Peter says, we know you're the Messiah, and we know that the words you say can save our souls. It's a confession of faith in Christ. And Jesus' response, not to Peter, but to all of them, all 12 of them, he says, didn't I choose you? And this is where it's helpful to have a pastor from Texas because we're going to translate it Texas style. The you there is plural. Jesus is saying, didn't I choose y'all? Talking to the 12. Now understand the context. Peter says, you've got the words of life. You've got salvation. You're the Holy One. You're the Messiah. And essentially what Jesus is saying to them is, that's right. That's right. That's why I picked all 12 of you understand it. Judas is in this group. Judas is a part of this group that is, according to Christ, knowing full well who Jesus is, believing full well what Jesus is capable of, understanding that Christ has the words of life. He has salvation. Judas is there, and Jesus says, that's why I've got all of you. And he goes on to make this further statement. And for the longest time, I struggled with this statement. You want it to be an adversative. Didn't I choose you 12? But one of you is a devil. That's what he goes on to say. He does not say that. He says, didn't I choose you 12? And, and one of you is a devil. And John goes on to add the parenthetical comment, for he knew whom it was that was to betray him. This is clearly a reference to Judas. But in the moment, he's just performed this really powerful miracle. He's just fed thousands, tens of thousands of people from just a handful of fish and bread. And they've gathered up 12 basketfuls. It's an amazing miracle. He says, if you really want to see a miracle, you're going to have to feast on my flesh and my blood because they are true drink. He's referencing salvation. Everybody gets offended. They all walk away. He turns to the 12. He says, are you walking away? It was just as offensive for them. It was just as hard of a teaching for them as it was for the 12,000, 15,000 people who left. And Peter says, no way. 
as hard as this is, as difficult as it is, and despite the fact that many of our cousins and our neighbors and our friends who are in that group just walked away because of how offended they are at what you just said, we're staying put because we know you have the words of eternal life. What a powerful statement. What a powerful confession. And Christ says, that's why I chose all of you guys. Referencing Judas. And I know one of you was a devil, is a devil. Judas understood who Jesus was, who he is, what he could do, what he can do. And yet there was a dark nature in him that could not fully surrender to that, could not fully appreciate that, but still regarded Christ as a tool or a pawn to be used to his own purposes. This is the heart of Judas. He had his own game in mind, but he was really good at appearances. So good, in fact, that he was completely and totally uh, trusted by many around him. During Passion Week, when Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, there's this account in which Mary Magdalene comes and shatters a really expensive uh, jar of ointment and takes her hair and wipes it on Jesus' feet. And if you're following the gospel account of John, the, John makes the statement, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, they always put this in there so you're never confused, Judas says to Jesus, following that anointing of his feet, why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And of course, John goes on to say that he had no interest in helping out the poor because he was in charge of the money sack and he used to rob from the money sack. But here, John says, listen, Judas stood up and he began to rebuke Jesus. He began to rebuke Mary Magdalene. And he said, you guys have wasted this perfume. You've wasted it. You've squandered it on Jesus' feet. We could have sold this and made a lot of money and given it to the poor, ostensibly. But if you go back to Mark, listen to how Mark records it. There were some of the disciples who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. And again, in this passage, it's in the plural. They did this, they did this, they did this. John says Judas stood up and rebuked Christ. And you think, if you're just reading John's account, that all the other 11 apostles were like, yeah, okay, maybe it wasn't the greatest idea, I'm not sure. But that's not how it happened at all. You take John's account and you combine it with Mark's account, and it's very clear that a controversy circulated. There was an instigator who began to go from one person to the next and began to whisper and slowly but surely manipulated a group of them into standing up, and Judas himself is going to rebuke Jesus, and all these other guys are going to at least, the very least, go to Mary Magdalene and scold her and rebuke her for taking what was her own possession and using it to anoint the feet of Christ. Judas wants the money for himself, but he is so trusted, he is so respected and so revered that it is a relatively small thing for him to do in a very short period of time to get all these other guys together and say, look at the waste, guys. Look at the waste. And while they're not going to be so brazen as to rebuke Jesus, he's got them ripping Mary Magdalene while he himself will oppose Christ. 
Now, this thing was shattered. The deed was done. She wiped his feet with her hair. And very shortly after, he's got the whole crew up in arms. You don't get 11 men riled up and ready to rebuke Mary Magdalene, who is also one of Jesus' inner group, unless those 11 men already respect you, trust you, follow your leadership. You say, I didn't know he was such a pivotal figure. He was chosen from among the 12 to have stewardship over the money bag. And he wasn't from Galilee. Step back for a second and consider the 12. 11 of them are from Galilee. The majority of those 11 are fishermen. There's one guy who's an out-of-towner, Judas Iscariot. It means man of Kirioth. That's what that last part means, Iscariot. Kirioth is a town in Judea, southern portion of Israel, not from the north, not from Galilee. He's not got the same accent. He's not got the same dialect. And yet, when it comes time to picking a guy who's going to be responsible for all the money that is given to us to support this ministry, he's the one they chose. And he was trusted. He was respected. They followed him. He was a leader. He presented himself well, so well, in fact. Now, just to put an exclamation point to this, on the night of the Passover, on the night in which Jesus is to be betrayed. All of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record this. Jesus says something to the effect, my soul is troubled. One of you is about to betray me. And they're all gathered together. They're all having the last supper. They're all having this final meal together. And Jesus says, this very night, one of you is going to betray me. None of them says, Judas watch. I bet you money, which is in his money sack. It's him. None of them said that. They had lived together. They had worked together. They had ministered together. They'd been discipled by Jesus. They had spent three years in the closest of quarters. And all four gospels, all four of them feel it is important and a significant detail to indicate to you that they were so sure of each other that when Jesus says, one of you is about to betray me, they don't immediately think, well, I'm pretty sure of myself. I, I, I think it's that guy, or maybe it's that guy. No, all four, all four of the Gospels say that they all began to be sorrowful. They all began to grieve and ask Jesus, is it me? Is it me, Lord? Am I the one that's going to do this to you? If you're in a room full of people and you don't know those people and somebody comes in and says, one of you is a tax fraud. Now, we all go to H&R Block. We all try to get the biggest discount that we possibly can. If somebody comes in the room and says, one of you is a tax fraud, you might be thinking to yourself, mm, maybe I didn't file my taxes properly, but no, no, I'm pretty sure it's good. But if you're in a room of people and you don't really know these people very well, you're not going to immediately conclude that you're the one about to get hammered for a fraudulent tax return. You're not the one about to get audited. Your first assumption should be like, well, it, could, it might be me, but it's, it's probably, like, ooh, that guy, yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't look very well dressed. It's probably his concern over there. You're going to form an opinion based on other details. 
They knew each other, and they were so confident of each other. Now, when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, they do just like what you and I do. They go through the list. Is it him? No, it couldn't be. Him? No way. Him? No way. Him? No way. I am so sure of these guys. I am so absolutely convinced of them that it's got to be me. And the scriptures say they were sorrowful. They were so convinced of them that they were immediately convicted that they were guilty of it and they hadn't even done it yet. God, I'm sorry, is it me? Step back and whatever you might think of Judas, he's a clever man. He's a careful manipulator. He's trusted, he's respected, and at the start of it all, he was chosen because he loved Jesus. Don't miss that. He really loved Jesus. So what happens in all of this? Where do things go wrong? Though he loved Jesus, this is the part that we need to be reminded of. He didn't love Jesus to the point of surrendering to him in order to worship him, in order to allow Christ to be king. He loved Jesus because of the places that Christ could take him, because of the things that Christ might do, ultimately because of what purpose Christ served in the life of Judas. Judas loved Jesus for the sake of Judas. Judas loved Jesus because of the profit it brought to Judas. Judas didn't love Jesus for the sake of Jesus. Now I wonder, as we're here this morning, is that some of us? In fact, if I were to say to us this morning, in this room, one of us is going to betray Christ. I'm sure all of us at this point in our walk with the Lord, we've all come to this place where we recognize our own weaknesses and our own inability to perfectly honor Christ and everything that we do. So if I say to somebody this morning, I have it from on high, one of you is about to betray Jesus. I have no doubt that in this room, amongst the company gathered here, we're going to start to ask ourselves some pretty hard questions. Could I do it? And we know with sobering reality, yeah, that's probably me. I could possibly do it. Judas wasn't the only one that sinned against Christ that night. Peter denied him too. Three times. In fact, he denied him so forcefully, if you'll recall, that when the little slave girl comes to him and says, weren't you with him as well? Aren't you a Galilean? I can tell by your accent. He denounces Jesus so vigorously that he curses In fact, the slave girl's response is like, well, yeah, okay, you're cursing. Obviously, you're not one of his disciples. What's the difference between Peter and Judas? The difference between Peter and Judas is how they responded. 
When Peter hears the rooster crows, he runs and he weeps. When Judas sees that he has betrayed innocent blood, he commits suicide. One person accepted who they were and cried for it, cried for the wrong they had done, grieved over whom they had hurt. That's Peter. But Judas was so full of himself that when he saw what he had done, when he recognized that he was now the one who would be forever known as having betrayed Jesus, he did not turn back to Christ. He did not weep. He did not say, I'm sorry, I've done wrong. He was so in love with the image of himself that all of the other apostles had come to admire and respect. He was so in love with the idea of himself that once that image had been forever shattered by the fact that he had betrayed the Son of God, once he came to the recognition that he could never, ever get that image back, that he would be known as the traitor. He could not live in that world. And so rather than turning to Christ and asking for forgiveness, Peter, the one who also betrayed Christ on that very night, finds himself here 40 days later saying to the remaining 10 disciples besides himself, the remaining 10 apostles, we got to find somebody to take Judas's spot. Peter cursed Christ. Peter ran from Christ. Peter betrayed Christ just like Judas. And yet, here in Acts chapter 1, one man stands to give leadership, and one man is never coming back. The pivotal difference is the pride in each man's heart. Did you know that pride is how we typically refer to it? And if I stop and I say, are you a proud man? All of us here would say, yes, I have pride in my heart. I struggle with pride. But there's another word I'd like to introduce to you this morning to accurately capture just how dangerous and how dark pride can become. It's a word known as narcissism. It's this idea, this image of yourself that you're in love with yourself. You're in love with who you want to be. This idea, this image that you want to present to the world. And in this day and age of Facebook and digitally edited photos and Adobe Photoshop, more and more this idea is being cultivated. It is being fostered. We want to look pretty. We want to look good. We want other people to see us a certain way. And more and more it is the image of ourselves that we are falling in love with. And church, I just want to caution you this morning as we begin to approach communion table, it is not your image that you're to be striving after. It is not the look of you that should take central place in your thinking. It is Christ. And if you spend too much time 
time thinking about how you look and how other people see you. And if you spend too much time trying to craft an image that will be approved and applauded by the world, whatever image you choose to make that, whether it be a supermodel or an upstanding deacon in a church, if you are not living to the glory of God but to the applause of men, you have become the same as Satan. Listen to this passage. Don't flip, just listen. Narcissism is the heart of Satan. Ezekiel 28, God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel to Satan. Listen to what Satan's primary crime was. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, you are the signet of perfection. You are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in your beauty. You were in Eden. This is the garden back in Genesis 1. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, Topaz, it goes on. On the day that you were created, these stones were prepared for you. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the fiery stones, you walked you were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. And so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. You say, that's great. We're clearly talking about Satan. But what was his crime? Here it is, prophet Ezekiel. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom, what you intellectually knew was right, for the sake of your splendor. You see, we like to talk about pride and be like, oh yeah, I'm a proud person. I struggle with pride. I don't like it when people speak critically of me. But we need to step back a little bit and say, where does pride actually go? Where pride takes us is to a far darker place, a place where we want to be loved, we want to be adored, we want to be admired, we want to be worshipped. And as we consider Judas, we see a man who was loved, who was respected, in a sense, who was adored amongst the eleven. We see Peter, another leader within the group, who was loved, who was adored. They both made critical mistakes. They both failed. And what they do with their failures tells you everything about what they're worshiping. One man says, I have sinned. This is reality. I go to Christ. I ask his forgiveness. I accept who I am. Church historians say that for years afterwards, as legend has it, for years afterwards, to the close of the first century, Peter, whenever he would hear a rooster crow, would, in the middle of his sentence, break down and start weeping over the reality of what he had done to Jesus. By the close of the first century, Judas is just known by one word, traitor. Difference between Judas and Peter, whereas Peter goes to Christ, accepts who he really is. Judas can't stand who he really is. And knowing that he can never reverse or erase or undo or correct or Photoshop or rewrite history, he hates how he has messed it up and he rejects the reality that is and he commits suicide. 
Now, you're sitting here today and you're saying, I know that that's me. Where does that leave us with God? Psalm 55. Before I read this psalm, I want to share with you something personally that I observed a number of years ago. Two pastors, two elders in a church. One was more gifted than the other one. Both very solid, very biblical, very godly men. Both really grounded in the word. One was more gifted at public speaking than the other one. And over time, envy and jealousy began to take root. Bitterness began to take root in the heart of one so that he became very, very critical of the other one who was more gifted in public speaking. As the church continued to grow and thrive and flourish, there was more and more a demand for the first elder to continue preaching. And it wasn't that anybody didn't like to hear the second elder preaching. They just preferred the abilities and the gifts that God had given the first elder. And in time, as these two elders began to experience tension within their relationship, it was eventually acknowledged that the second elder didn't feel like he was respected, didn't feel like he was loved, not because he wasn't, but because the church didn't like his preaching as much as they liked the first guy's preaching. These two were really, really close. They were friends. But because of his jealousy, the friendship soured. It became hypercritical. They began to nitpick everything that the first elder did. And in time, he eventually sought out opportunities to smear and to slander the first elder. It wasn't that the first elder didn't want this fellow to preach. It was simply that he couldn't give the second elder what he wanted. He's not in charge of the gifts or the abilities which are sovereignly assigned and given by God. We all want to be able to preach like Billy Graham or John Piper. We all want to be able to just captivate a room with our incredible storytelling and to be able to say the point in just such a way that it just drives it home. But the reality is, is I'm Josh Claycamp. I'm never going to be anything other than who God made me to be. And you are simply who you are. But in this relationship between these two people, the one was not satisfied with the gifts that God had given him and resented the other for gifts which could never be transferred. And so he began to savagely attack that person. Now, the reason I share all that with you is because you're sitting here today and you're thinking, I know that in the pride of my heart, in the vanity of my heart, there have been times in which I have betrayed Christ. Does that mean that I'm headed towards the path of Judas? Does that mean that I am on the, the trajectory of apostasy? No. I want you to listen to Psalm 55. Psalm 55, verse 12. This is Christ speaking about his betrayal. It is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. 
but it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. You could translate that best friend. It is a man who is well known to me. It is a man who I know intimately, who knows me intimately. My familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. What's worse than dying by crucifixion? I wholeheartedly agree with you. I've preached sermons to the effect that crucifixion is the worst form of death. You're stripped naked. You're put up on this torture stick. You're left for days. You die a slow, painful death of asphyxiation. It's horrible. It's the worst form of suffering that has ever been conceived. But do you know what's worse? Betrayal that leads to crucifixion. The only thing worse than Jesus dying on a cross is Jesus dying on a cross having been betrayed by a best friend. As you read this passage, you don't hear anger. You don't hear retribution. You don't hear the drumbeat of war. You don't hear Christ saying, I'm going to destroy you now. You hear, if you listen to it, sorrow, heartache, heartbreak. It's not an enemy who taunts me. It's my friend. It's not an adversary who deals instantly with me. It's you, my equal, my friend, my companion, my familiar friend. Christ loved Judas. My belief is this. Having betrayed Jesus, Judas could have repented. He could have, with remorse in his heart, turned back to Christ. My conviction is that Christ loved Judas the same as he loved Peter, the same as he loved the other 11. But Judas loved his image more than he loved Jesus. When you read Psalm 55, you don't hear a Messiah talking down about Jesus, Judas. <laughs> he goes so far as to say, my equal. And we know that that must be some form of hyperbole or poetic device because Judas and Jesus are not equals. But this is clearly a passage of Jesus looking at Judas and saying, this is my friend. So if you're here today and you're thinking, as we approach communion, I know I've used Christ for my own purposes. I know that there have been times in my life where it hasn't been about worshiping Jesus. It's been about Jesus just doing what I want him to do, serving to me like some cosmic genie to help me further my own purposes, to further my own goals, my own agenda. Listen to what Jesus is saying to you. You are his friend. He loves you. He died for you. He knows full well the betrayal of your heart, and he still longs to have a relationship with you. But here's the lesson, and here's the choice. As we finish off in Acts, listen to what Peter presents to the, ch to the church that is gathered there. In Acts chapter 1, as Peter is 
searching for the, the scriptures, looking for guidance, looking for wisdom. Here's what he says. He quotes two passages. He says, uh, he was numbered among us and he was allotted his share in this ministry. In other words, Judas was one of the 12 and he had a portion to do here with us. He turned away from that. He turned away and look at what he says here. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Obviously, Judas goes down the path which God knew beforehand he would take. He commits suicide. He ends his life. Peter's statement was he was given a lot and a portion and a share. And he turned away from that to go to his own place. Notice what he says. This man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open into the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akadama, that is, field of blood. Peter's statement was, we now have to find somebody else to take this position. We now have to find somebody else to step into this role. Judas went to his own lot. He had a lot with us. He chose a different lot. He had a portion with us. He took the rewards, the money, the 30 pieces of silver that was given to him, and that money was eventually used ultimately to buy him a different plot, a different place to go, and he went to his own place. But here's the decision that's for us today. Regardless of whatever journey you have taken, regardless of however you may have betrayed Christ, regardless of all of the things in your own heart that you know you're guilty of where you have used Christ for your own purposes, you don't have to turn away from Jesus. Christ still calls you. He still beckons you to come. And you can throw in your lot with the brotherhood of the saints. In order to do that, here's what you need to do. You repent of the fact that you've used Christ or you have tried to use Christ to your own purposes. You accept who you really are. No more false images of yourself. No more holding yourself up as this invincible superhero Christian. Be real. And then you accept what Christ gives you. You be who he has called you to be, just as you are. Ultimately, as we come to the community table, the call is for you to love Christ. I have no idea who wrote this poem. It's a poem that someone wrote to Jesus, and it needs to be the cry of our hearts. It's a poem that Judas would never have written, and I dare say it's a poem that Peter would not have written prior to the night that he betrayed Christ and then repented. But it's a poem which we all should sing. I love you not only for what I am when I am with you, but simply for who you are. I love you not only for what you are making of me, but for what you have made yourself to me. I love you. For those parts of me that you bring out, I love you for putting your hand into my heaped-up heart and smoothing over all the foolish, weak things that only you can help. Seeing in the dimly lit there and for drawing out into the light all the beautiful belongings that no one else had worked quite hard enough to find, it is those things you work to bind 
and to my side. I love you because you are working in me to make of the lumber of my life not a tavern, but a temple. Out of the works of my everyday, not a reproach, but a song. Let me sing on and on, for you, O Lord, are my God. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to be like Judas. We don't want our lives to end in anger and self-hatred because they didn't come out the way we wanted them to. Lord, whatever our lives are and whatever our lot may be, whatever the future holds, wherever you may take us, we know you are good, you love us, you are in control, and we pray, Lord, that through all of the circumstances, however life might unfold, we pray, God, that you would help us to be a song sung to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.